Section 30 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heirloom by T. Dothy Lyle. Volume 3, Chapter 3 A Trap to Entrap a Sunbeam. We must now once more follow the devious tangled thread of our narrative into the great American Empire city of New York, where Vandermeulen's little ferret man, Paul Newgas, ever watchfully waited for their developments, or was dutifully awaiting the commands of his chief. But Paul Newgas had not been slothful in his master's business, he had not been an idle watcher, he had not kept laid up in a napkin the talent which his master had committed to his charge, and the meat of intelligence which he had invested had not been without its some measure of reward. But of this we may have some more to say. It was about as soon after Colonel Vandermeulen's interview with Mr. Lumley, as a communication, except by cable, could be hurried across the Atlantic or from London to New York, that Paul Newgast did receive certain orders from his chief. As soon as it came to the knowledge of the American detective that the ring, that trinket of such value, had disappeared from the late Bertram Gonneau's dead hand, he thought he had discovered something which was of great importance in his sharp eyes, a mere gossamer thread which many men would not have heeded as it floated in the air, but which, if deftly handled, might lead him out of the mysterious baffling maze. The trinket, he knew, must be somewhere in the world, and he resolved that it should be through the lack of no effort of his if it did not come into his hands. He argued to himself, if there was a human being ruthless enough to commit the assassination, there was a human being vile enough and full enough of iniquity to think but lightly of adding to the already full and abundant cup of his iniquity the lesser and less heinous sin, for theft is the felonious deprivation against his will, or surreptitiously, of a fellow human being, of his goods, but murder is the highway robbery of a fellow creature's life perhaps, with the exception, when gained, of heaven the most valuable inheritance to which humanity is heir. Now that which, with certain instructions and orders from his chief, did reach the hands of Paul Newgas as he loitered about Vandermeulen's little den near Battery Park, was one of those wax impressions which Mr. Lumley had given him, and which Colonel Vandermeulen had so carefully treasured up, of the late Bertram Gonneau's sapphire ring. It is a lamentable reflection how much of the alloy of poverty has been foisted off on to man, or man has brought upon himself to bear, together with the vastly increasing wealth of the world. But perhaps as evil is the inevitable attendant and curse of the good, and the powers of darkness have ever sought to dim the light, so probably in like manner in this world there will ever be squalid poverty as well as overabounding wealth. There would appear to be a school of misleading fictionists who would palm off onto the innocent the belief that New York City is the refuge of the thriftless and ne'er-do-well of the old world, the very paradise of the alchemist, the El Dorado of the money-seeker, wherein, so they tell you, beggars are no more frequently visible than blue moons, where gold is used to pave the very highways, 
where every other man is a millionaire, and where poverty is a thing quite unknown. But reader, if you have hitherto kept outside of the American Empire City, and are therefore innocent of its condition, its wiles, and its little ways, these are delusive fictions which you are advised never for one moment to entertain. For together with the great wealth which has grown up around this gateway into the new world, there has sprung up with it, likewise, the inevitable degree of squalor, poverty, and necessity, which, like some spirit of evil, have come into the gates which lead to prosperity and wealth a realm of gold, as though wafted across the ocean upon the wings of the demons of thriftlessness, sloth, indolence, and, in all their unlovely shapes, of vice and crime. As in the old world, so in the new, the curses of necessity and usury abound, the necessitous driven into the toils and machinations of the designing and usurous, as the fowls of heaven are by hunger lured into the fowler's snare, the gloating wealthy draw the very life's blood from the already attenuated and necessitous coffers of the poor. And it was upon the assumption of the want and necessities of the necessitous that Paul Nugas played his wily game. Limited opportunities, as Paul Nugas had ever been afforded, of enjoying the use of the precious metal, he knew that the American dollar was almighty, and for its possession he saw daily that men around him slaved, and schemed, and toiled, and even died. The ring which the millionaire owner of Vernwood, when in life, had always worn, and of which Paul Nugas now held the facsimile impression, was a very costly jewel, a jewel which could be converted into the means of much enjoyment, and the little man argued shrewdly and rightly that it would not for long remain in necessitous hands, and none other than the necessitous, he argued, had, next to the murdered man, been possessor of the jewel. For some few days after he had got possession, from Mr. Lumley, of the late Bertram Gonneau's seals, Colonel Vandermeulen resorted to all those tactics to find the actual signet from which they were taken, which are well known to the English detective world. But as far as London was concerned, all Colonel Vandermeulen's efforts had been fruitless and vain, and there seemed on to the rest of the mystery to be as much doubt closing around the loss of the signet heirloom as there had been about every other step and aspect of the case. But it was now only the denser darkness which is greater before the dawn. Paul Nugas had no sooner gained possession of one of the late owner's seals which the latter had impressed during his life, then from end to end of the Empire City his attention was directed to those abodes of usury and refuges of the necessitous, where articles of value may be pledged for a mere fraction of their intrinsic worth, and which are no less or more plenteous in England than in America, or in London than in New York. At last, as fortune seems to bestow its favors alike upon the diligent and the bold, the little ferret man thought he had found his reward. He had examined all the multitudinous and heterogeneous odds and ends displayed in these establishments of New York City, where, to judge from wondrous collections of oddments heaped up, one would think the proprietors of such establishments were by the very demon of heterogeneous accumulation possessed. Sometimes he would think he had discovered the identical coveted jewel 
which was for the time being the desire of his life, but then on closer examination he turned disappointed away. But at last there came his reward. By the more powerful and official help of the New York City police, which, after exhausting all his own private powers, he had called into his aid, commencing near City Hall, Paul Nugas set about a thorough and systematic inquiry, which he purposed instituting, if necessary, through every street from Battery Park to Harlem, for like the hungry bird, Paul Nugas resolved that no stone should go unturned beneath which might be deposited the coveted worm. But Paul Nugas had not proceeded very far ere fortune, which is so fickle and tantalizing to the timid and vacillating, and hands over the key of its treasury to the bold, seemed to play into his very hands. In an establishment near the northern end of the Bowery, one of those refuges of the thriftless and necessitous, Paul Nugas came upon what he no longer doubted was the late Bertram Gonneau's sapphire ring. Comparing it with the wax impress which he had received from his chief, he found it in every particular down to the most microscopic detail to correspond. There was the shield graven upon the facet of the rare unclouded gem, there was the coat of arms, with its quarterings, from which was not even omitted that hateful, sinister bar. There was the surmounting Gonneau crest of the javelin grasped in the gauntleted hand. On the little engraven scroll, beneath, were exactly legible in clear but tiny letters, the motto of its owner's house, Dum vivo nunquam sesso bolare, While I live I never cease to war. With the help of a magnifying glass, Paul Nugas and his official companion of the New York City police compared side by side the signet and the seal, and then the little ferret man felt as though he could have danced with delight, could have stood upon his head, could have run a race on all fours, could have gone head over heels, could have executed as many somersaults as an acrobat, or could have played any other extraordinary caper in the extravagant intensity and exuberance of his delight. The possessor or holder of the ring was a Hebrew named Levi Cohen, but who under the name of Simpson conducted an establishment, as he himself would of course have protested much to his own pecuniary disadvantage, and solely for the benefit of the numerous family of his many brothers and sisters, many daughters and sons, and to whom he had stood in loco avunculi, which may be loosely translated in their parents' brother's shoes. In plain words, although he called himself Mr. Simpson, this said Levi Cohen posed as uncle to as many of the necessitous scions of humanity as, like the spider intimated to the fly, he could induce to enter, and forthwith be bled, fleeced, and shorn within the doors of his little home. But under the influence of the lever which Paul Nugas had brought with him, the impressive squeeze which he received at the hand of the limb of the New York City law in the shape of an imperative officer of the New York regular police, that much-injured Hebrew moneylender, Mr. Levi Cohen, alias Simpson, was compelled to admit that he had advanced a comparatively insignificant sum of money upon the jewel, which still under due pressure he acknowledged was intrinsically a very valuable gem. 
Then who pledged this article with you? Asked the New York officer of police. With an air of still greater injured innocence, such as the lot of the Jewish race has ever been one of Gentile oppression, Levi Cohen shook his head. Selp him God, he didn't know. But with yet another turn of the Gentile screw, yet another squeeze from that lever-like limb of the New York law, acting much as an instrument of torture in the Spanish Inquisition, in which, like Shylock, his Shakespearean prototype, Mr. Levi Cohen thought he saw in the near future the imperilment of his principle, his usury, and his bond, the supple Hebrew was brought into a submissive state of mind, and with slow, reluctant fingers felt himself compelled to produce a document relating to the transaction, on which was written the name and address, in full, in New York, of a certain Michael Gervois. Having got so far what they desired, with a hint of warning to the now more submissive and gentle Jew, Paul Nugas and the officer of New York police withdrew to review and consider their plans. For to the eager, elated mind of Paul Nugas, the identity of that certain Michael Gervois, whoever he might be, became as desirable as imperative a necessity as only a few hours before it had been to him to ascertain the whereabouts of the sapphire ring. And then the natural bent, the genius of Paul Nugas, that useful talent which the observant van der Mullen saw that in him lay, flashed forth, for whatever the faults or the virtues of the American people may be, they are not slow to recognize and to turn to account either special talent in any direction or brains. And then Paul Nugas did that which in Yankee parlance would be called rather a smart thing. Then and there, without affording Mr. Levi Cohen, alias Simpson, any scope or opportunity for false play, he returned to the office of the usurer and offered him, payable within one hour, a reward for his cooperation, which was equal in amount to one half the money lender's loan. The little man's acute thrust struck the usurer in that tender place which has been the vulnerable point of his peculiar people through all their generations, throughout all time, which has survived apparently all the persecutions, all the wrongs, all the changes of country, climate, and dominion, whether in bondage or free, whether prospering or oppressed, namely, it appealed to a greed which, alas, is by no means confined to the Hebrew race, his avarice, his insatiable love of gold. Then that which happened we will not describe in detail, but will leave it as our story proceeds for the sequel to show. Within an hour of his having struck his bargain, Paul Nugas had paid the substantial money reward, which he knew where to procure, into Levi Cohen's hands, which raised his bushy eyebrows and caused his dark, beady eyes verily to twinkle with delight. Although it was the price of blood, it was an augmentation of his hoard, it was the momentary assuagement of his thirst for gold, which was a part of his very flesh and blood. But how to possess himself of a reliable, identifiable, indisputable portrait of the unknown man Michael Gervois, whoever or whatever he might be, who had brought the signet ring to Levi Cohen, 
was the problem which sorely exercised the little ferret man's mind. One thing he learned from the pecunious and circumspect usurer was that Gervois had received a far less sum on the security of the jewel than he had asked, and this became the string upon which the little ferret man quickly saw that he might most tunefully play. And so that which Paul Nugas did, the first step in his move to gain his desired end, was to request Levi Cohen to write a letter to the man Michael Gervois, who had deposited the jewel, telling him that having more exactly priced it, he was now willing either to increase his advance thereon, or would negotiate an absolute purchase of the ring, at the same time desiring him to pay him a visit at a certain hour on the following day. Like the wary fisherman who stands in the concealment of the bulrushes by the water's edge, and throws his baited hook upon the stream, that was the bait which Paul Nugas cast upon the tide. Meanwhile, he secured the services of a photographer, and placed his camera in a small room adjacent to that occupied by Levi Cohen in his trade, but in such a way that although the lens commanded a complete view of the money-lender's sanctum, and every one therein in its field, yet from this outer room, which Levi Cohen devoted to the purposes of his usurous calling, neither instrument nor operator could be seen. Such was the simple machinery of the trap which Paul Nugas set to catch, as it were a sunbeam, the shadow of his man, but the shadow rather than the substance was that which just then he had most exercised his wits to gain. Thus having adroitly and craftily set his snare, the little ferret man patiently, or rather impatiently, awaited its result. Perhaps it would be safe to assert that Paul Nugas slept very little that night, so intent was his mind on the interesting details of his game, a game by which he knew much of his reputation in his master's eyes must stand or fall. It was long before the hour of Levi Cohen's appointment with Gervois that Paul Nugas and his artist were ensconced in the moneylender's little back room, and as the hour drew near, the little ferret man's expectancy grew too intense almost to be endured, as he saw the so nearly successful consummation of his scheme. Then, with a punctuality which would have been worthy of a better cause, Levi Cohen's bell rang, and the next moment the false and usurious Jew, with much fictitious affectation of welcome, admitted Michael Gervois. The latter appeared to be a man approaching fifty years of age, with long, dark, curling beard, and with a worn, almost dissipated face and working hands. His dress was dark, ordinary, and plain. Levi Cohen gave a prearranged signal to Paul Nugas, and then, with the unsuspecting Gervois, he entered, intently engaging the attention of the latter, into the business at hand. Into the details of that business we will not enter. It is enough to say that the business ended by the usurer Levi Cohen paying an additional sum into Gervois' hand. Then, bidding his very accommodating banker adieu, the bearded borrower departed a well-satisfied man. But probably Michael Gervois would have departed far less satisfied, he would have wished the sapphire ring and Levi Cohen in Hades, he would have wished himself at the bottom of the sea, 
he would have wished he had never been born, had he known that during that fatal half-hour in the which he was receiving so much careful and kind attention at the false hypocrite's Levi Cohen's hands, in which he thought he was being so generously done by, had he known that more than once, more than twice, so noiselessly and still so unerringly, through the tell-tale lens, the light of heaven was transferring the true unerring likeness of his face onto that sensitized plate of glass. But that was a trick which Michael Gervoy had yet to learn. It was a trap into which, fatal as it was, even he himself knew not that he had so unwittingly fallen. These were things which Michael Gervoy had yet to learn. End of section 30